Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Stray the Course, the podcast. In this episode, Andy Stashenko and I sit down and talk with our friend Fred Maton. Fred is a professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. He grew up in Sweden. And we try to figure out how a guy from Sweden ends up going abroad and becomes a teacher at the University of New Hampshire of Middle Eastern history. Along the way, we talk about IKEA shortcuts, Swedish fish. We try to figure out how many languages Fred actually speaks. We talk about Oxford, Robocop, The Tempest. Um, and we talk about his book, Electrical Palestine Capital and Technology from Empire to Nation. You can get it on Amazon, so check it out. Make sure you get it. Support Fred. Fred's a really smart guy. I learned a lot from this podcast. I think you will too. So check it out. And as always, this episode is brought to you by the world famous Tortuga Soap Company. All the things you need to keep you looking and smelling good. Use the discount code podcast and get 20% off your order. And if you're in the market for some handmade jewelry, make sure you check out beautytobeast.etsy.com. Enter the discount code Riddler and get 10% off. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hope everybody's doing all right out there. Peace. Casa de George. Oh, in the barn. Yeah. Real Dover. Real Dover over here on this side of the river. Oh, it's, yeah. Kachigo <laughs> Riverside. Yeah, as, uh, as opposed to all the bougie downtown Dover. Yeah. yeah, this is real Dover. This is, this is real. Roots. Um, so, welcome to the Stray the Course, the podcast. Fred. And Andy, who Andy, this is like number three. No, I'm double dipping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fred, how do you say your last name? Maton? Maton? Maton. Maton. Fred Maton. Yeah. Also known as Swedish Fred. That's right. Um, <laughs> so we're going to get to this because I'm interested in, I've always been interested in how a guy from Sweden ended up in Durham, New Hampshire, teaching. Um, Middle Eastern history. Right. You know? Yeah. Where are you from in Sweden? I'm from Stockholm. Oh, really? Yeah. Big city. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's always nice to be able to say I'm from Stockholm because most Americans only know that one place. Right. So everyone, there's always like a look of relief when yeah. like, I'm from Stockholm. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. What's growing up in Stockholm like? I've never been to Sweden. I don't really know anything about it. Yeah. Oh, it's good, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice and safe and... Everything like that. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. I mean, at some point when I became a teenager, I found it terribly dull and, you know, I had to get out and all that stuff. But, yeah, it's probably relatively good. What's the, what's like the, is, Ludafisk is not. Ludafisk. That, that is, a, is that a Swedish? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's, uh, uh, you get it in other Scandinavian countries too, right? But, yeah, definitely have Ludafisk in Sweden. Fish marinated in lye yeah yeah right so all the all the traditional dishes in scandinavia are date back from when everyone was dirt poor and didn't know how to 
preserve what little crappy food they had, and they you know, would put it in lye or do other gross things to it. Mm. And now we eat it, uh, you know, to celebrate our heritage. Yeah. Do you eat it still? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't think I've had it since my grandmother passed away because she was, I think, the last person to insist on having lutefisk uh, during Christmas. Uh, so it's kind of died out a little bit in our family now. But uh, I used to have it, and I used to um, tolerate it, but not much more than that. I mean, it's basically like super mushy fish, right? Like yeah, white yeah. fish. Yeah, that doesn't really taste like anything and has the texture of snot. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. Does it matter what the fish is or it could be any fish? I I don't know. I I would I would guess that it that it's cod. But it, there's definitely some kind of white fish. Is there a lot of cod in Sweden? Yeah. I mean it used to be the case when we were growing up that uh cod was like the the garbage fish, I yeah. feel like that. You just got in like the school cafeteria and like it was the cheapest, crappiest thing that no one liked. And now it's like a delicacy that you're paying you yeah. have to like pay through the nose for. Because we wiped it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, here's, I took a his. I took, one thing I remember from, I think, early American history class at UNH, mm. we read, a, you know, we were reading a book, and it was like a first-hand account of somebody coming over here, and they said, like, that the waters around New England were teeming with cod. Right. I don't think I've ever seen a cod in my entire life. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, that uh, fish truck that, uh, that, well, that whole, um, uh, cooperative of, of fishermen, right? And they they park their truck on weekends outside of Tender Crop, and they sell cod for twelve dollars a pound, right. which is crazy. Yeah, like it's the most expensive fish they have. But it used to be the thing that was uh, everywhere. I know that, like I saw in Bar Harbor, they're trying. They were trying. They've been same thing happened there. It's all wiped out, and they've been right. trying to bring it back. But the problem is, I guess one of many problems is that. Um, you know, tr when they when they got the nets and they dig up the ground, it like ruins the cod habitat too. Mm -hmm. So you can't just like put them back in. Yeah. Who do you take this class with at, at the history department? Man, that one. Jeff Bolster. No, but I know who he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, he was like the 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 legend of. He's the, the man. Yeah. Yeah, he was yeah, the man. Yeah. He just retired uh, this spring. All right. Yeah. Um, he was like studying. I feel like he was studying like black seat captains or something at yeah. one time yeah that's right he published a book called black jacks yeah about uh uh black sailors in the age of sail it's a really good book uh it's really uh cool but after that he published a book called the mortal sea which is all about how uh we sort of uh have fished out all the oceans and we're about to just run out of fish period it's crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's also it's an even better book, and it won this really prestigious history prize, the Bancroft Prize. Interesting. So it was just like it was exactly about this stuff. Right. So I figured maybe that he was the guy who taught you about it. No, but I mean, I've grown up here. And, yeah. Uh, my my grandfather, like one of my grandfathers, was from Peaks Island in Maine. Like all yeah, islands yeah. out in Maine. Cliff I was Island. out there. It was really cool. It's really yeah, cool. Yeah, he was yeah, born there. Cool. He was born on Cliff Island. And grew up on Peaks Island, and like he joined the military and went off. But like, all most of the people out there were fishermen. Yeah, like Scottish people that had come down from Canada. Right, right. Uh, so, 
And my dad, my dad was a history major, at UNH. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. that's cool. Pala, <laughs> legend. Um, so you've been educated in many different places. You were yeah, educated yeah. in Sweden. Yeah. You were educated in England. Yeah. Did your postdoc in Chicago, mm-hmm. and now you're here at UNH. Yeah. You're a very cosmopolitan individual. A very cosmopolitan. So tell us. You also you forgot uh, about uh, also Israel and Palestine. So. You lived there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Will you tell us like give us the rundown of your travels and how they corresponded to where you were in life? Can we just have your life story? Yeah. Really? <laughs> we know oh, you, God. right? Yeah. We know you in a certain yeah. way, but we never heard like right. the legend of Fred. You know, we want to know how you got here. Yeah. It's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah I don't know. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I think I was, uh, um, uh, I was, I guess I was just like a bored teenager mm-hmm. in Sweden and I decided I, I started at university, uh, and did, then did you know you wanted to be a professor or an academic or was it something that came to you later? Did yeah, uh, it was definitely a thing that, uh, sort of the idea of it appealed to me yeah. uh, from an early age. I just, cause it gets, sort of gives you this, uh, sort of nice position uh, from which you can just read and write sure. for the majority of your uh, working day. So that's nice. Uh, so yeah, so that was always something I thought about uh, a little. But yeah, then, I don't know, the middle thing was kind of, I, I went sort of on a lark. While you were undergraduate? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and um, uh, I, I did a, an intensive uh, Hebrew language course, figuring that, that way I could get my parents to pay for me going. Uh, and, and so I did. I, I went this one, uh, on this three-month sort of extended intensive Hebrew course. Was there, what was the appeal of Hebrew for you? I mean, you're a kid in Sweden, and you're drawn to the Middle East for some reason? It was just uh, the opposite of what I, what right. I was I see. seeing around me, I, I think. Uh, but maybe also it was um, that, you know, the Middle East was at the center of geopolitics, I guess, at the time. Like, if, if I had been born 50 years earlier, uh, I would have maybe gone to Russia or Eastern Europe somewhere and, okay. like, tried to learn Russian. But instead, you know, with 9-11 and all that stuff, uh, the Middle East seemed to be where it was at. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so I just went there. What was it like seeing 9-11 from... Were you in Sweden at 9-11? Yeah, yeah. What was I, that like? Um... It was, I mean, uh, I think I was like, I was a little too young for that to, to really have a, a major effect on me. I, I, were you in college? N- no, I had just graduated high school. Okay. Uh, and I was, I was working, uh, as like a special, uh, teacher's assistant for, uh, this child with a learning disability. Mm-hmm. And I was only very vaguely aware of the fact that there were these two tall buildings, um, mm. you know, uh, in Manhattan uh, that were called the Twin Towers. And so when they came down, it was like I was made aware that they existed uh, at the same time as I, you know, as they were no longer there. Right. Um, so it wasn't that, that significant of sort of an event for me. As, well, I mean, of course, you know, like, no, you know, I understand. Kind of like as a political thing, but it wasn't like an emotional right. response I had right. already. Um, yeah. And then just, I just went to the Middle East. I, I did my, the, and the Hebrew, I don't know why. I mean, it, it was, 
Did you retain okay. any of that? Can you speak Hebrew? Yeah. 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 Uh, so how many languages do you know? And that really, really comes down to how you define no. I, I know. How many do you know more than Andy? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, I suck at a lot of languages. Well, you're I'm a like, PhD, so. Exactly. Like, we I, all suck at several languages. Right, right. I, uh, I get by, by the skin of my teeth uh, in a bunch of languages. Right. No. Okay. So what languages do you, can you write in English, Swedish, and another language? Or is it those two that you write in? Write in? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do okay with uh, uh, Hebrew, too. Cool. And um, Arabic is tricky uh, with writing, because even if you can read Arabic, the, the, the sort of the uh, act of uh, actively generating written Arabic is hard because there are all these kind of grammatical rules that mm -hmm. you don't necessarily necessarily need to know in order to take it in passively. So at, at one point, um, I was pretty good at writing Arabic, cool. but now I'd have to sort of refresh. I see. Because I, I read it, but I don't really speak, okay. or I don't really uh, write it that often. And it's also a different thing from the spoken Arabic. Um, so, okay. Yeah. What is Farsi? Farsi is per like it's just Persian. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a weird thing. I don't know why people call it Farsi. Farsi is just Persian in Persian. Yeah. But I mean, like you call it Chinese right. or French, you, or right? You don't say Francais. Uh, right. Right. speak Francais. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Farsi is just Persian. But the Persian is different because it's an Indo-European language. So it's actually more like uh, English or German or whatever. Whereas uh, Arabic and Hebrew are Semitic languages. So is that spoken mostly in Iran? Or is Persian, it, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. that's Persian, right? I mean, more or less exclusively, yeah. And then, I mean, uh, other languages that are spoken around that area are, I think, close enough to Persian that if you know it, you can kind of figure it out. So I think, like, Pashtun in Afghanistan is, like, close enough that if you have an ear for languages and you know Persian, you can kind of make mm. do. Uh, or get by there too, but so you went to Jerusalem, or you went to Israel? Yeah, Jerusalem. Right, you went to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Like, did you go and study, or did you like? Because I know people that would go to the kibbutz. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, it's a uh, which is just a farm, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just a, a communal farm, uh, uh, right? Well, if given the choice between studying all day or like picking oranges. <laughs> <laughs> before sunrise, uh, I would go with studying. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so I, ended, I ended up in the in the language course and not in the kibbutz. Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, you go to the kibbutz if you're like Jewish, right? And that's I feel like yeah. that's your. Well, now that's true. I think uh, once upon a time, when uh, when Israel was the darling of the left, which it was, uh, perhaps before. Uh, Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza in, in the late 1960s, uh, leftists would go to Israel uh, because the kibbutz is this, you know, like communal farming thing. And so, and it was based on these ideals, socialist ideals of... What year, uh, what year is this? Is this like pre-70s? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then it became more fraught uh, as, as the Israeli occupation sort of penetrated sort of consciousness around the mm -hmm. world and... Uh, sort of sympathies started to shift right. away from Israel towards the Palestinians. And uh, now you that. have Sasha Baron Cohen interviewing <laughs> Roy Moore, asking exactly. questions yeah. about support for Israel. Yeah, yeah. 
that character is ridiculous. He's um, amazing, right? Yeah, right. yeah. He's a really amazing yeah. individual. Yeah. So, so, oh, go ahead, George. So, man, I was looking, like, Jerusalem, the history is, I mean, even if you're not, I would like to go to Jerusalem. I was mm-hmm. looking at, you can go to things and see history that's, like, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Still there. Yeah. Thousands of years, right? I mean. Yeah, it's, uh, well, sort of. It, it, it's funny because, uh, um, uh, I remember when I went there, and I was so impressed, and it feels so old, and the old city, like, has this kind of old feeling, you feel like you're walking, like, transported back hundreds of years in time, uh, but uh, the old city of Stockholm is much older, really? you know, <laughs> yeah, which uh, is ah. kind of funny, um, and, like, you go to in, uh, one of the sort of key sort of tourist attractions in Jerusalem is the, Ho- the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, which is uh, uh, where Jesus, uh, where Jesus was taken before he was crucified, right? And so, um, and that church has burned down like five hundred times. Uh, and the last time it burned down was some sometime in like the mid nineteenth century. So it's actually not that old. Right. Like the church is actually kind of new. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, most of my grandmother's furniture is probably older than that church. You know. Um, but it feels very old. There's like a way you go there, and it's like, ooh, like I'm kind of in the in, in biblical times. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think a lot of why you feel that way is you just come with these uh, notions to kind of love, like being, you know, being in the Orient and like all that stuff makes you feel as if you're experiencing some authentic um, past, whereas in fact you're kind of experiencing just a different kind of present that's like the same. How old is the stuff in Stockholm? It's very old. Yeah, it's like uh, the oldest stuff uh, in Stockholm is like, I I think, I mean, this obviously I don't, I don't know really anything about this, but I think like 13th, 14th century, wow. like the oldest buildings. Yeah. Most of it isn't that old, but yeah. Um, so, yeah. But Jerusalem is very cool. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I just read a story about the... Samaritans that there's actually like a group oh, yeah. of Samaritans like there's a little they tr- they say they can trace their lineage you know back through uh, uh, I don't think they're in Jerusalem I think they're outside of Jerusalem somewhere yeah. it was interesting yeah the back to like the original good Samaritan right right <laughs> like they have you know it's like they have yeah. the little family tree oh uh, uh, cool. yeah. yeah where else did you go in the Middle East oh uh, I. Well, I've I've lived in uh, Jerusalem and um, Ramallah in the West Bank and uh, Damascus, Syria. In Syria, yeah. When did you live in Syria? In two thousand seven. So that was right before everything started happening, right? That was a few years before, yeah, um, yeah. So what do you when you see what's going on in Syria right now? What do you like? Yeah, I mean, it's really sad. It, I lived in Damascus, and I think Damascus uh, has been mostly spared uh, so far, but um, places I visited and, and spent some time in, like Aleppo, uh, seems just like completely destroyed, and the old market there, which is was actually gorgeous, and uh, I think is all, or mostly gone now, or just like rubble. So, the, I mean, it's got terribly sad, of course. Um, but yeah, so, so it goes civil war. Right. Um, on that note, 
Did is there like was there just elections in Sweden? Yeah, and it's like yeah, yeah. Like there's like some some <clears throat> angst in Sweden right now, yeah, right? Yeah. Tension. Yeah, like like everywhere, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, because of because of people leaving Syria and going to to Sweden, is that? Yeah, I. Uh, you know, actually, I, I know so very little about Sweden these days. I don't follow Swedish news really um, very carefully. Uh, but of course, all of Europe is uh, confronted with this problem of, of having all of these refugees, whether they're refugees from war or from economic uh, um, uh, circumstances. But they arrive in Europe and... Uh, and the Europeans don't know exactly what to do with them. And then some countries have more generous asylum policies than others. But the number of is huge. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's like affecting the whole... I, wa I just watched a documentary on Syria by Sebastian Younger. Yeah. And it was like, it blew my mind. Yeah. Um, the numbers of people. Because Sy like they part of it is they show this family in Syria and... Basically, Bashir Assad was messing with him, mm. and then the Taliban was messing with him, and this guy is just like, man, I got to get out of here. Like, everybody, you know, it's like, it's just a mess, and it's so it shows all these people, and the numbers are so huge that it's just, like, disrupting, you know, the whole Europe. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And they're not just coming from Syria. But right, they're, right. Um, um, I don't know what the figures are now, if it's uh, uh, past a million or if it's in the hundreds of thousands. There are definitely millions of people in the refugees camps in, like, in Jordan and in Lebanon and stuff. Um, but then I think um, you get uh, all these people coming from North Africa and Ethiopia and, and so on also kind of coming into Europe at the same time. Uh, and and it's a, a problem, especially in a place like Sweden, where the population is very homogenous, and they have a kind of it's a very exclusive club where everyone is exactly the same, and everyone thinks the same, and have the same assumptions about how society should work, and everyone has learned the same songs growing up, and the same everything, right? And then. Uh, and there's also this cultural smugness in Sweden where the assumption is, I think, that if you take in these refugees uh, and you give them a couple of minutes to adjust, they'll see that Sweden is the best society on earth. And so they will gladly assimilate, uh, you know, and, and become functioning, happy members of Swedish society. And then uh, to the great shock of many Swedes, uh, it turns out that some Syrians think that you know, Syrian culture is just as good as Swedish culture, <laughs> and they're not willing to just relinquish everything to to become full-on Swedes. Uh, and then, like, yeah, and then there's the kind of question of like, well, how do you deal with that? And like, how do you deal with a society that's suddenly diverse in this way that it hasn't uh, been before? Are there particular points of tension between the native Swedes and the um, influx of Middle Eastern or other uh, refugees? If there's tension? Yeah, like what are the specific sites of tension between those two groups? Uh, I, I, actually, I don't really know, uh, frankly. But uh, I think Swedes are, by and large, very open-minded and even curious and, and welcoming. But 
Um, but I think it's also difficult having grown up assuming that everyone around you shares your kind of values and but also shares this like vast repertoire of like cultural knowledge and then coming up against people who don't share any of that mm-hmm. with you for obvious reasons right but uh yeah and then and then I think the uh but I don't know what the specific tensions is okay. of course like for 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 some uh, like small segment of the population it's just straight up racism right, right? it kind of translates into we don't like people right. of color and so then we don't want their culture and their values to come into our society and corrupt it and all that stuff uh, but I think that there's a much sort of broader kind of spectrum of sort of softer racism or like discomfort right. around sort of having to interact with people who don't share all of your um, culture and your assumptions um, they don't even look the same yeah exactly yeah yeah and some of them like want to want to dress differently and you know all the all these weird things that you know people don't know how to deal with exactly is ikea swedish yep <laughs> how do you yep. feel about ikea <laughs> i've actually never been i don't think to an ikea really? yeah, yeah. yeah i've yeah. heard it's very like orderly you can oh, get, yeah. it's like you go one way through the whole thing and if you miss something you gotta go like it's very hard to get back yeah there are shortcuts there's, <laughs> like, there's a all ikeas are like this like you, know, you have to, you can you can walk the path and it just takes you forever but there are these shortcuts and you can just suddenly end up like in a totally different place it's it's uh yeah, it's crazy but you have to know it i think you, you, it might be that you have to be Swedish to yeah. really be able to navigate. Like, Maybe yeah. we should bring you. You just have a yeah. mental map. Exactly. Right? <laughs> no, I'm just like, I feel like we should probably be turning left. And then, like, it doesn't look like a door, but then it is. It appears. Are you sure, sure yeah. that the directions to an Ikea store are not embedded in, like, a Swedish, you know, children's song that everybody mm-hmm. learns? Right. There are, like, secret messages yeah, yeah. There, in it, Swedish it, culture that, that will help that you navigate be, Ikea. That could be true. There, there could be something like that. I remember when I was a kid, because of course IKEA has been around in Sweden for a very long time. Um, I, uh, my parents would take me, and it was so terribly boring that I would get physically nauseous from being there. And so, for the longest time as a kid, I, the association for me with IKEA was nausea. Mm. I just wanted to sort of, like throw up. Was it the formaldehyde? <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually think that it was a, like a, a just a psychological reaction to being so incredibly bored yeah. at being in this horrendous place. It's probably the the reaction everyone should have <laughs> yes. going into a store like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Not enough people do exactly. It's that, and it's also the you know the test of like how strong is your relationship? Can you go to IKEA mm. with your partner and and like, you know, not be like in a fist fight by <laughs> by the time you get to the Swedish meatballs? I don't know. It's an open question. It's funny. What about Swedish fish? Not Swedish yeah. at all, right? Or are they? Well, yeah, right. So, it's, it's, well, there's uh, um, what what's called Swedish fish here. Like it's different, but it, there's a kind of a similar candy in Sweden. Was it? But called it's obviously all, all, only called fish. Just fish. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's just like the Chinese don't call it Chinese food, right? So it's just <laughs> food. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same. It's not Swedish fish. Mm. So tell us about how you got from the Middle East to England. Uh, I, well, I, uh, when I had been in Israel for a while, so I went to Israel and I did this language course and then at some point, uh, uh, sort of 
uh, without too much planning, I decided I was going to stay. And so I did, and so I finished part of my uh, degree, the sort of like back half of my history degree, mm -hmm. remotely okay. uh, while I was in Israel. And then um, I wrote my sort of BA thesis and whatever. And then I uh, applied and got in to do a master's in Middle East studies at Oxford. And so then I went to Oxford uh, and I got my degree from there. So Oxford is a pretty big deal, yeah. right? Uh, it is it, to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. It's like one of the most prestigious schools in the world. I just, that's what I wanted like, to make yeah. sure. That's yeah, that's what I thought, right? Like you like, have Harvard here, and then you have Oxford here. Yeah. Like, 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 old school. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, uh, uh, Americans are all so impressed by all the European things. I feel like <laughs> it's, it's like funny. I, I, you know, we are. I, I feel like if I, um, I don't know. Well, I mean, Oxford is a, a really good school, obviously, and there's like there are uh, like lots of great uh, people there. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, just no, it's, it, it wouldn't be that impressive. Are you saying I shouldn't be that impressed? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, no, I, you should be because I am. You should be very impressed. I don't give out like uh, I'm not that impressed by most people, but. <laughs> Yeah. When you say Oxford, I'm like, oh, yeah. well, I'm not talking about the shoes. Yeah, that, right. that's impressive. Yeah, to me. Yeah. Yeah. What? So you? So that was your your you you got your master's degree from Oxford. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then I started my PhD there. Uh, actually, like, what was Oxford like? Like, what you know? Mm, it was really. It, it was great. I I loved it there. It's um. It's a very strange mix between. Uh, uh, kind of a very, it's a small place. Um, it's not in London, correct? It's no. like in the countryside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, 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 a, Oxford is a sizable uh, British town uh, with a population of maybe 150,000 okay. or something like that. Uh, and a big proportion of them are associated with, uh, the university in one way or another, as uh, students or um, uh, teachers or administrators or whatever it might be. Janitors. Janitors, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, porters. Right. Uh, Grave diggers. <laughs> Grave diggers, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but it's nice because it's quite small. Uh, and uh, and within Oxford, there's this college system, right? So you have smaller kind of colleges. And so when you go to Oxford, you're both sort of accepted into the university, but then you're also become a member of a college. And oftentimes you live in that college and you have most of your meals in the college, like dining hall and things like that. So, so it, breed, it's, it breeds this very intimate atmosphere where you, you if you're lucky anyway, um, you know, make a lot of really close friends that you spend a lot of time mm -hmm. with. And uh, so it's great for that kind of thing thing yeah cool tell us a story like what do you remember what's like a particular moment that you remember from oxford uh, i don't know uh, <laughs> like what was it like being around british people with like their wry humor and their <laughs> sort of like you know where are you different from them because you're a laid-back swede uh well i spent quite uh, kind of um yeah quite a lot of time in Britain before uh, going to Oxford, um, I 
um, I was a precocious child and I decided that I was going to learn perfect British English at like age 11. So funny. Uh, and, uh, and it was going to be British English, not American English, which is, you know, Sure, that's vulgar. And yeah, vulgar. yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> right. Some degenerate kind of pigeon. <laughs> right, thing exactly. That I wasn't going to speak. Can I just point out that you have fallen so far from Oxford to land here with me, right? I know, yeah. In, in yeah. Dover, New Hampshire. <laughs> speaker of horrible English. It's outrageous. I'm sorry, yeah, Fred. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, man. it's a... Uh, Oh, it's a tremendous fall from grace. <laughs> it really is, George's yeah. nickname is Butcher of Words. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. George, I, I, make words, words. Yeah, yeah. I make up words. I make up words a lot. Yeah. Oh, that's pathetic. Yeah. Although it's, it's funny. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there, but but um, when I was at Oxford, I was uh, since I was doing Middle East studies, um, I was in this college that had only graduate students and no mm -hmm. undergraduates and uh, that was a very international college because it was the one that tended traditionally to house most people studying international relations of various kinds uh, whether uh, international relations itself or area studies like Middle East studies or Latin American studies or whatever so uh, most of the people I got to know uh, and who became close friends weren't British they mm. were American uh, or uh, from the Middle East or Latin America or do all Middle over. Eastern people study Middle Eastern studies? They do. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really interesting thing if you do area studies, of course, because there uh, there's a fundamental division I think between scholars because one group of scholars are have chosen to study something uh, about themselves, right? right? Their own societies, and the, another group of scholars have chosen to study. Oftentimes, what is the exact opposite of what they are, right? It's so like the outside is, looking in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's either kind of like introspection or like this kind of, I'm curious about what is totally different from me. And you have these two groups of scholars. But it's also kind of cool because, of course, in between those uh, two groups, you get kind of a, a, a nice picture kind of emerges of um, the Middle East where you get both perspectives. Has the Middle East always been, like, as tense and as kind of unsettled as it seems right now? Is it like, or is this a relatively new? Because you hear people be like, "Wow, the Middle East's always been that way. It's gonna be that way forever." <laughs> yeah. Is it all? Has it been that way for? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, there's been ups and downs, uh, uh, of course, like uh, anywhere else. I, I obviously uh, no serious uh, Middle East scholar, or certainly not any M Middle East historians, would subscribe to any view that Middle Easterners are kind of destined to be right. sort of in conflict with each other, or to any kind of facile understanding of uh, divisions within the region being the result of sort of divisions, religious divisions, like between Sunni and Shia, and so on. There are always much more. Well, complicated, but also sort of uh, uh, pragmatic and sort of realpolitik type reasons why people are fighting. It's never just a kind of a mysterious oriental kind of animosity that stems from the Bible that drives people. But that is oftentimes uh, when people say, oh, they're, they're, they've always been fighting, they always will be fighting. Oftentimes it comes out of some kind of orientalist understanding of what people are like there. And I, I don't subscribe to that. But... What do you mean by Orientalist? 
Well, Orientalist is uh, so uh, there's um, um, uh, back in 1978 this uh, very famous uh, Palestinian American uh, professor of literature at Columbia University, Edward Said, wrote this book called Orientalism. Um, in which he argued that the way the Western world has tended to understand the Middle East is not on the terms of the Middle East itself, but rather uh, by inverting the, uh, the sort of Western self-image. So the East is everything that the West is not. So if we are one way here, then sort of automatically by definition almost in orientalism the orient is going to be the opposite uh, and so he made this argument that you know even scholars of of the middle east if they are from the west have tended to sort of uh read this kind of mirror image onto like self-centered yeah yeah this sort of so so really what it is is it's just sort of um a self-centered sort of like Anti-Europe. The Middle East is the anti-Europe part. If Europe is civilized, then the Middle East is not civilized. Exactly. And that is a philosophy that would allow the Europeans to justify, you know, making inroads into the Middle East and right. setting up a colony and putting churches and hospitals and doing what you see in, like, uh, Chimo Achebe's Things Fall Apart, if you guys read that novel, mm -hmm. yeah. where, you know, because there's this civilizing mission, which is actually a phrase from... Uh, um, Kipling. I think so. Rudyard Kipling. I think so. The civilizing mission of the British is to bring, you know, order to these backwards places. Yeah. Yeah, which is always the... Uh, the, the way you can justify colonizing right. places, yeah. Going out west, going, yeah. you know, going yeah. down yeah. South America, we got to make civilized these savages. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, and so that, I think that applies to the Middle East too. And, and maybe, I mean, say, uh, I argue that it applied in particular to the Middle East because it is the neighbor, like the Euro Europe's sort of immediate neighbor, like the the way we relate to the Chinese is different because they're kind of uh, far away, but the Middle East is like the other that is right on our doorstep, and that's why we get this particularly warped understanding of them. That's actually like super significant in my area of expertise in early modern studies because you have these Christians in England and in Italy, people in the Mediterranean who have encounters with these Arab pirates, right, who are dark and who convert uh you know wayward sailors to islam and there are you know a lot of stereotypes and a lot of literary images of these people who that are like otherized like mm -hmm. othello who looks on the surface you know he's this noble grand military commander but by the end of the play he's become you know a dupe and a murderer and also Shakespeare's Caliban, a black guy right. on an island, you know, who is depicted as like superstitious and backwards and gullible and easily controlled. Yeah. And a lot of this goes back to, you know, it's the, um, you know, the Christian Europe trying to differentiate and defend itself against the Arab, threatening Arab Middle East. Yeah.
Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I don't know this field as well, well as you do, obviously. But The Tempest is one of the kind of iconic plays. Exactly. That, right, to, I mean, to analyze from that post-colonial. You, you must have encountered it if you read like Franz Fanon or any mm -hmm. of the other yeah. post-colonial scholars. They took that example and used it as like the foundational tenet of post-colonialism. Yeah. And now it's actually like unethical to talk about the play The Tempest as like an artistic object right. it's like unethical not to mention you know the plight of the other mm -hmm. when you're talking about the tempest yeah yeah did you ever come across like um geohumoral theory no so back in <laughs> all right so back in like you know it started with galen right the uh greek philosopher But from Galen up until the Middle Ages, up until the early modern period, people believed that the environment, the temperature, the climate, where you lived, the quality of air that you breathed in mm. had an effect on your body. Yeah. So the English and the Vikings, they were slow and sluggish, kind of stupid, but resilient. <laughs> because they lived in this cold temp this cold climate where they had to endure the rough winters and it kind of stunted them mentally but they were noted for their physical strength and for their uh like gullibleness mm -hmm. but in the south uh so actually the perfect time zone was rome was oh, you yeah. know rome and greece because this is where the classics came from right. so these were the ideal people were but in the south it was the opposite of the north the people were um they were like um You know, they were energetic and they were fanciful, they were romantic, but they were weak and they were misguided. So it's like a very interesting concept. And it's really interesting because you can trace like modern racism, the development of modern racism out of this concept, because mm. the, the, the whites waged like an intellectual smear campaign against, you know, blacks and north africans in order to make themselves feel themselves make themselves feel better about their own stereotype mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's uh, interesting um yeah i know very little i uh, i know very little about galen and humors and stuff but it's a it's a really fascinating it is. theory it is you can segue into a different topic you can tell us about uh As I read your article, Electrifying Jaffa, oh, before you? we got here, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, you know, you're obviously working with uh, Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, and you're talking yeah. about the episteme. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about, you know, what's your definition of that, and how do you see that as illustrative of the, um, the marriage between history and, and, and philosophy? Hmm. In in you know, in studies of history, huh. um, and then we won't talk about academic stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> George is on his phone. Listen, no, he's just like, what are you guys I'm like doing? Like epistemology. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I was. Um, well, I mean that whole that whole project about electrification came out of a. a Uh, my wanting to uh, not 
have anything more to do with Foucault, mm. sort of. Makes sense. I, I wanted, uh, in, instead of uh, talking about talking, so instead of, and talking about words and discourse, right, and right. that kind of thing, which is, uh, for the most part, the kind of uh, research that Foucault inspired. I Who's Foucault? Michel Foucault is a, a French philosopher, uh, I suppose philosopher. Yeah, yes, he's uh, a philosopher. Yeah, uh, who was active uh, in... 70s and 80s. The 70s and 80s. So recent. Yeah. I think, really he, recent. I think he, he died, died in, in the 19, 90s. 1984. Oh, 84? Okay. I think. Um, yeah, and, uh, and he uh, pursued this uh, intellectual project of uh, examining how knowledge gets constructed uh, in ways that sort of intersect with power. So the, the sort of, you can't really separate uh, power relations from what we believe is true and untrue. Uh, and there, there's really no way of sort of um, forming any kind of knowledge that isn't conditioned by power relations. So in his formulation, every epic, every era, has a different overarching understood to understood to the point where it isn't even mentioned systems of belief that structure lesser beliefs and behaviors. So let's say this is an example from history. Um, you are Russia in night in the first decade of the 20th century, and you're going to war with Japan, but there are these racist policies, these racist ideas in effect. And you don't give the Japanese any credit. So you send less troops to go fight the Japanese and then you lose a war. Mm -hmm. So these underlying beliefs have a huge effect on, you know, everything that uh, on the course of world history. Because you were racist. Because you were racist, because you have a particular belief about gender, because a particular religious ideology permeates, you know, uh, your decision making. I mean, there are so many ways that these right. things influence you and you don't know until it's over and you can sort of look back and, um, you know, with hindsight and say, okay, how was this era different from the last era? Like the opposite would be like Japan looking at America in World War II. Like Japan, we can't lose to these Americans. Like we are, you know. Yeah. And they, and they did. Right, and then they look back and are like, "Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, we underestimated those guys." Uh, yeah. Right? Is that the kind of like what you're talking about? Yeah, we're talking about like big structures of knowledge that organize smaller structures of knowledge. Yeah. So even like even something so basic as uh, uh, deciding who is uh, sane and who is insane, mm -hmm. um, nice. is, is like a function of, uh, of, of these kind of power relations. The people who have the power decide who yeah. is insane. And yeah. And it's not, it, not in, in a kind of evil genius scheming kind of way of like five people in a room saying, let's define insanity yeah. this way. And that, that'll get us the most power. Yeah. It's more of a, like in a sort of a, a latent, latent or subconscious right sort of, um, working out where, you know, you make decisions over and over again in your research and th those decisions are arbitrary and conditioned by, uh, things. And so curiously, you know, you, um, 
the powers that be end up sort of, or the status quo ends up being reinforced by the knowledge that's produced under that regime, sort of. Yeah. Uh, so it's just kind of very conveniently the the sort of uh, this this way that they kind of yeah. support each other. So if you think about, there's a term called an epistemic shift, which is when we identify how one previous overarching belief, we figure out that it's wrong and then we change to another one. And maybe the biggest, one of the best examples would be Galileo, right? How many tracts or treaties might have existed that, you know, talked about God's divine plan and cited the fact that the uh, earth was the center of the universe. And then Galileo changed all that. And there's an epistemic shift. So now we're producing knowledge based on our new revised assumption. Then we talk about this with the plague. Yeah, a little bit. With germs. Yeah, we did. We did. We went from, uh, you know, the site of disease as being something in your body, right? Your body is diseased or deformed. That's what they thought back in the humoral days. And you would get sick if you had a humoral imbalance. But then the plagues occurred and people started seeing uh, the effects of transmission where if Fred was sick and I hung out with Fred and then I got sick, that happened enough times where people realized what they used to think was wrong and there was an epistemic shift. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Back to your original question. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, what happens when you're, when you do what we do. Right. Yeah. Right. You got to explain it to me. <laughs> no, 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 like, uh, like you ask a question, right? And on perfectly valid, like, conversational thread, we go off in a totally different direction, you know, because we're very detailed and we gotta pursue every point. Mm. But the original question, I don't even remember. Well, yeah, I was just saying that I was originally, I had been so, uh, yeah, steeped in Foucault and other kinds of sort of questions to do with culture and discourse and you know the um, the excuse me <laughs> the realm of like ideas that I wanted to find the most concrete material thing I could find and then write a history of of that uh, to not simply write a history of how people talk, even right. if that matters, but also it's just something just like concrete that you can. So that's why touch. you wrote about electrification with its documents and its yeah. know, contracts between people and the right. events that actually happened. Yeah, but then, but then Foucault snuck in yeah. the back door or something, right. and uh, and actually uh, ended up being all over that that article. And also, uh, my book that's coming out in November is, is also just Foucault is all, all over the place there. But he sort of snuck in, I don't know what, maybe, maybe you know, it was like the ultimate revenge of all my history professors <laughs> right. uh, who made me read that crap and that I wanted desperately to get away from. And then you just you can't. Know, I just can't, you know. Yeah, it's going to be the as, same for me. As soon as you think you're out. So when you started writing the paper yeah. that he's talking about, like, did your understanding of the Middle East change? Uh, no, I mean, the, the paper, that article just drills down on these three years, 1921 to 1923, in Tel Aviv, 
and Jaffa and the construction of the first electric grid there. So it is, I mean, it is just so drilled down into this very specific thing that I don't know what it did. Other than it allowed me to, to, to craft a historical narrative uh, uh, and have it published for the first time. It's sort of a, a clear argument and a beginning and middle and end. And what is the argument? Uh, the argument is that uh, the material properties of the technology in question, so electrification, mattered a great deal to uh, how relations between Jews and Arabs unfolded in this sh short period, but then sort of set things in motion uh, that then reverberated throughout a much longer time period. And so more specifically, um, this grid was built by a Russian-Jewish Zionist by the name of Pinchas Rutenberg. Uh, and because uh, the grid was built by a Zionist, the Palestinian Arabs, who were opposed to the Zionists coming to Palestine to try and build a Jewish state, opposed the grid. Uh, but the fact that the fact that they were trying to oppose Zionism by opposing an electric grid, as opposed to trying to, or opposing some other project, mattered. Because the way the Palestinians were able to sabotage the grid, the way that the grid was vulnerable to certain kinds of opposition, and so on, mattered to the way the Palestinians carried out their politics, but then also how the Zionists then had to sort of operate to counter that kind of how did they uh, sabotage the grid well, like they, physical yeah means? they rode out and they they cut down the the pylons or they cut the wires or burnt them or the, burnt the poles and things like that so it's not that they were against electricity they were just against jewish people yeah well they weren't against jewish people uh just i have to be sort of be really careful sure. about these things they were against uh jewish people coming to palestine to create a jewish State. state, yeah, right. Because the Palestinian Arabs uh, wanted to create their own Palestinian Arab state on that land, and so they were opposed to someone coming in from the outside to try and do that mm -hmm. on on their land that they had already slotted for for Arab statehood. Um, and so you know, and so naturally, I suppose they were they were looking to resist this movement that was trying to come in and uh, and uh, usurp them. Was this like how? How did that happen? Was that something to do with World War One? Like how did the yeah. like the, they somebody gave them that land? Sort of, yeah. And, and so, uh, uh, really, the history of Zionism starts uh, in the last few decades of the nineteenth century when. When you say Zionism, you just mean Jewish independent state, right? Yeah, by Zionism, I mean the movement to create a Jewish state. Okay. Uh, there are um, lots of different kinds of Zionism, especially in the first few decades of the movement. Some were focused on creating a state, and some were focused on creating more like a cultural center, okay. uh, or to create some small model for how modern Jewish li uh, life should be led. Uh, but the the movement within Zionism that ended up winning out and that became dominant 
was a movement that sought to create a Jewish state in Palestine. Gotcha. Which became Israel. Which became Israel. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, uh, starting in the 1880s, Jews uh, from Eastern and Central Europe immig started immigrating to Palestine uh, in uh, growing numbers. Quick question for you. Were there Jews that were writing about go to Palestine? Yeah. You know, in the same sense that yeah. like Marcus Garvey wrote, go to Africa? Yes, okay. exactly. Uh, um, it's, that's actually a... Uh, that's a, it's a really interesting parallel that uh, is rarely talked about, but yes, that's, okay. that's uh, precisely uh, that's precisely what happened. Um, and so, uh, during in, at that time, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, which was this big Islamic empire that held uh, most of the Middle East, and that uh, at its peak. Uh, ha held vast territories in Europe as well. Uh, uh, the Ottomans lay siege to Vienna twice, uh, so they got pretty far north. They never managed to take Vienna, but they did lay siege to it twice. Um, and uh, uh, so this was the th so this was the power that held Palestine. Uh, now the Ottoman Empire um, entered World War One. On the wrong side, on the losing side, mm -hmm. uh, and so at the end of the war, uh, the uh, uh, Ottoman Empire collapsed, and the British and the French and some other powers stepped in, and they took over the territories that the Ottoman Empire had formerly held, and that only the core area of the Ottoman Empire, the what is today Turkey, kind of remained uh, as an independent state, and so the British came to rule Palestine as a result of this. Uh, and the British ruled Palestine from the, uh, from the end of World War I until uh, shortly after the end of World War II, when they gave up because it was just too much of a headache trying to control uh, this constant uh, conflict between Jews and Arabs in Palestine. And so they gave up and, Did they, and left. Like, this is when they just started making up boundaries, yeah. right? Yeah. There were... How did they come up with the boundaries? Uh, yeah, they, everyone had some angle, uh, and by everyone, I, I'm, I mean the Europe, all the European countries. Uh, Russia wanted a um, warm water port, so like a port that didn't freeze over in winter, and the French wanted certain uh, had certain sort of trade relations in mind, and they actually desperately wanted Palestine. The British wanted a bunch of different things, including uh, a safeguarding of the Suez Canal that mm. uh, is sort of the thing that, the sort of the canal that connects Europe to India. And India, of course, was the crown jewel of the British Empire. So the British didn't care that much about the Middle East, but they cared about India, and so they cared about the Suez Canal, which is uh, in Egypt. <clears throat> so everyone had sort of a different idea of what they wanted out of the Middle East. And so they, they fought over the terms of uh, uh, the sort of post-war or interwar order and, uh, and the British ended up with Palestine. Uh, and they also um, um, uh, issued this declaration in 1917, so the year before the First World War ended, where they uh, 
pledged their support for the establishment of what they called a Jewish national home in Palestine. And the British were, by and large, during the time they ruled Palestine, um, biased in favor of uh, Zionism over uh, Palestinian Arab nationalism. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Um, I suppose. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, not, not everyone, of course, was, uh, was biased in favor of Zionism. But I think by and large, and certainly sort of in the, on the higher echelons of the British government, uh, support for Zionism was, was pretty uh, widespread. So tell us about your book that's coming out. And, um, hmm. you know, you didn't, what's, if you can do it, you know, in kind of layman's terms, what's the central argument of your book and why is it important? Uh, the central argument of the book uh, is close to what I was saying about the article. It is essentially that we have overlooked the way that the uh, that technology uh, intersects with or evolves together mm -hmm. with politics. Okay. So that when we look outside at uh, the sort of big technological systems around us, uh, infrastructure like road networks or railroads or electric grids, we tend to assume that they were put there through some apolitical technocratic right. process. But in actual fact, these big technological systems evolve together with everything else in society, including politics. Right. So you're saying political favorites get the benefit of a seemingly neutral process of technological advancement. Yeah. Okay. And so this, and this is where it gets a little Foucauldian, uh, because uh, if power is constituted, oh, sorry, if knowledge is constituted through power relations, then I'm sort of saying uh, that um, uh, infrastructures are constituted through power relations, and those infrastructures will, will then reinforce the power relations that helped call the infrastructures into being. So there is this uh, pendular kind of or uh, dialectical movement of uh, mutual benefit between the kind of material infrastructures and the powers that created them and back and forth. Right. So that right. the powers, the influence or the political power of those in power is sort of entrenched uh, uh, in this and embodied in, in the infrastructure. Right. Um, and so, and so that's the kind of in the in the most in the vaguest, most kind of uh, general way. That's, right. That's the argument. Of the it's book. interesting too because it's very obvious. Like where do the, right. where do the power where do the power lines go? Yeah. Oh, they go to the municipal city plant. Right. Who runs the municipal city grant plant? Oh, this group. You know. Yeah. It, it is uh, part of part of what I think is kind of, in, kind of interesting about the book is that when I tell someone what the book is about, people are like, oh, yeah, that sounds duh. totally, right. duh, yeah. But then like, but why, but no one's writing it, right. you know, no one's saying it. And there's a sort of a, a, a weird kind of reluctance to deal with these questions, even though on, on some level, it is so obvious that this right. has to be the case. Right. But then we keep sort of still assuming or wanting to assume that, uh, uh, these are still not the outcomes of political contention, but the outcome of some, some kind of scientific reason that is above or outside right. of p political considerations. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Science has always been 
biased as well. Sure, yeah. You know? Um, But if you had to talk about your book, you know, to a non-academic audience, would there be, you know, an easy way for you to talk about the lessons that might be valuable to them, you know, if they didn't understand Foucault or they didn't have a shared cultural, you know, the shared, like, educational, that background? Like, how would you pitch it to, you know, somebody that just came in off the street or whatever? Well, I think... um, it would depend a little bit if if I was talking to an audience uh, that was interested about in the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli conflict. I, I think I would say one thing, mm-hmm. but if I was selling it to someone who wasn't already, uh, you know, who hadn't already bought into how incredibly interesting uh, Palestine is, then I think I would talk precisely about sort of infrastructure and the, the sort of political nature of infrastructure. Is it that like the politicians are like? You know, getting their, not necessarily maybe getting their buddies the contracts, right? But then, like, they're giving people contracts to build roads, and then the people are supporting the politician, and it keeps going. Yeah. Is that kind of what, like, ties into this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, right, and then, the um, you know, where <laughs> where do the roads go, and where don't they go? And then, uh, a lot of the time, the, the communities, I mean, just... Uh, a good a good sort of contemporary example from this country, of course, is all of these predominantly black areas, especially urban black areas, w- that are uh, completely underserved. Uh, and so as a result of that, they're underserved in terms of access to groceries and healthcare and education. And so then, of course, um, um, that makes it far more challenging to grow up in an area like that uh, and and then get, you know, and go to college and sort of be successful and all those things. And so, uh, but we oftentimes then end up taking uh, um, the outcome of that as some kind of natural process where, mm. you know, um, the people who are disenfranchised as a result of infrastructural unevenness, for instance, are sort of made then responsible for uh, sort of uh, lagging behind or whatever when when in a lot of ways we've kind of created the preconditions that uh, we made it hard yeah harder for those people yeah yeah you know what I find most impressive about Fred is that he's writing this stuff and he's talking like this this isn't even his native language right right <laughs> like he's doing this in English you know yeah. so. Did you grow up with English, though? Like, or did you start learning it in school, or...? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I probably learned it from movies. Or, yeah? Yeah. Do you have, like, a memory of, like, watching a forbidden, Eng- you know, American movie or something? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I... It's not really... I, I, I do remember, actually, uh, waking up one day, um, and I was probably seven or eight or something, and my mom had rented RoboCop, uh, and I and like I woke up and I I found it on the on the living room table, and I was like, oh, this looks so awesome, and I put it on, and I watched like fifteen twenty minutes or something of it before my mom woke up and uh, and flipped that I was watching this terribly like brutal whatever movie, but I, I thought That's it was so funny. Good. Yeah. Did so your your parents spoke English? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Swedes are pretty good about English, and uh, in part, I think, because uh, uh, movies are dubbed, uh, or not dubbed, sorry, so, yeah. so from 
you know, as soon as you learn how to read, you're watching English language TV and movies and stuff, uh, and you're and they're and you're just reading the subtitles, and so you're kind of learning learning English from a very young age, at uh, least passively. So you're, you know, your main role as a as a professor. I mean, you're a professor, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, is to do research, but you also have to teach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they expect you to re- do research and produce books. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, I, I teach uh, two courses per semester, uh, which is not full-time work. I think the assumption is that you do, uh, you, you spend some portion of the week on your teaching and some portion on research. Although no, no one's ever broken it down for me in specific hours. And, and I certainly work uh, more than full-time Total, but I, but I think it's it, you're not expected to be working full time just as a teacher. You are supposed to like take time to do research also. I mean, you would say that that's your main priority, right? Because you're on yeah. what's called the tenure track. Yeah, and you need to produce a certain amount of research in order to stay at University of uh, New Hampshire, correct? Yeah, yeah. So is tenure track like a thing that they spell out for you? Like this is what you have to do to become tenured, or is it just like you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, they 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 want you to have. It's not very precise, uh, but there there's a sort of an expectation that you have uh, published a certain amount of uh, research, but also that you've taught uh, and you have teaching experience and you have decent student evaluations and uh, and also that you've done service work so that you've been on committees and. This, this uh, probably constitutes service work here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Community engagement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yes. <laughs> what are you teaching this semester? Uh, I am teaching uh, a survey course in modern world history. And uh, Is that for freshmen and sophomores? It's for anyone, yeah, I but guess, but, but most of them are pretty early on in their college careers, I okay. think, because it's, it's a distribution requirement that most most students, if not all, have to fulfill sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And I think they're encouraged to, to fulfill those requirements early on. And, and it's a fairly basic course at a, uh, that um, you don't have to have lots of specialized knowledge or anything to, to take. So most people are, I think, in their first or second year. Um, and then the second thing I'm doing is a more advanced um, seminar uh, on oil and water in the Middle East mm. and sort of just looks at uh, natural resources in the region and the politics around them. Cool. What do you hope, like, if you got a freshman, like, do you get, I mean, you get freshmen taking that survey course that aren't history majors? Most of them aren't history majors, yeah. What do you hope that someone who is not a history major, like, who is not into history... Yeah. So maybe they're like in the business school and they're like, right. oh, man, I got to take this history class. Like, what do you hope that they get out of it? Um, what I, I, I aim to do one thing and one thing only with that class. And that is to make students, especially at the University of New Hampshire, where I think 94% of them are white. And from New Hampshire. And from New Hampshire. Yeah. Is that many people from New Hampshire at UNH? You're either from New Hampshire or you're from Northern Mass. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it um, it is a um, 
I, don't, I, I can't remember what the breakdown is, uh, but it, but a lot of New Hampshire, uh, uh, people from New Hampshire at UNH, which is good. I think that's how the, the how, that's how the public school system should work, that this is your opportunity to get a uh, quality education in your home state. It's subsidized. And I, I mean, I like that system. I think it's a really nice one. Uh, but I'm hoping to get uh, students to more consciously reflect on how much of the way they understand the world is um, comes out of this kind of Western-centric or Eurocentric sort of understanding of the world, where they sort of assume that what is around them is actually the universal standard by which you judge everything else. So I try to get students to become a little more aware of how much of their thinking is conditioned by these um, uh, sort of provincial sort of perspectives um, and, and ask them to consider uh, what the world looks like or what world history looks like from China or from the Middle East or Africa. Not from just New Hampshire perspective? No, I mean, it's a, it's a great perspective <laughs> to have, obviously. Obviously. Uh, yeah. Uh, but just, uh, and it's not to, I, it, it's hard to get students to learn a ton of facts when I'm having to cover 500 years of mm. global history. But so just that thing of becoming aware of uh, all these assumptions that you're, you're coming to the study of the world with and, and, and how they are kind of culturally contingent or conditioned. And uh, yeah, so if students think a little bit more about that by the end, then I'm happy. In your class, do you have primary sources which are you know, sources that are written by individual authors about individual circumstances and events, or is it secondary sources like textbooks and scholars? It's both. It's a mix. Okay. Um, what I, primary sources do you use? Um, all, all different kinds. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm limited to the stuff that's been translated into English, uh, but I try as much as possible to... Uh, there are a lot of really uh, well-done sort of primary source collections. Okay. Um, and so I, I draw on those a lot, uh, but it will be uh, just sort of first-hand accounts of what it is like to go shopping at a slave market mm. or, um, you know, a, an, like an account from a worker on a sugar plantation. I see. Uh, I, and, and I do assign a, a, a small portion of uh, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. Wonderful. When, when we get to... Very colorful. When we get like to it. decolonization. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure they it, like it. It's one of his psychological case studies that comes at the, en at the end that I really like. It's not the one where, like, the, the white woman's daughter looks at him weird in the grocery store, is it? No, it's... A, I, it's uh, the case study is this uh, a colonial official uh, who... Uh, comes to Fanon, who is a psychiatrist, with the, with the problem that he's uh, uh, being aggressive towards his wife and children when he gets home because all day long he's beating up colonial subjects. Mm. And uh, it's an important task and one that he wants to continue doing, but he doesn't want to go home and then continue beating his wife and wow. children up. So he needs Fanon to fix him so that he can continue torturing colonial subjects, but but to then sort of... <laughs> Limit his torture. Exactly, compartmentalize <laughs> yeah. better, yeah. so that he can come home and be a loving father. Yeah. This guy that and we're the talking point, about. The, 
was a psychologist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the the point of it, uh, the what I think the, the 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 kind of powerful takeaway is that colonialism kind of corrupts and damages not just the people who are colonized, but the people who are doing the colonization right. as well. Because part of darkness. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so those, those are kind of some of the primary sources cool, I cool. use. Yeah, we have a question from a listener. Oh, really? Also known as my wife. Um, <laughs> because no one's listening yet. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we, we haven't put it out yet. But people know. People, word is yeah. on the street that we're doing a podcast, and oh, the people wow. of Dover want to know. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're interested in these yeah. topics, yeah. which is this ties into. And I think about this stuff all the time, or maybe not all the time, but I do think about it a lot. Like in Jerusalem, and we talked about like how it seems old, but it's maybe not as old in the Church of the Sepulchre. Sepulchre. Yeah, Sepulchre. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just a tomb. That's it. It is. Sounds the name for a tomb. So if you take like the Quran or the Bible and like, how much of this stuff can you actually like in these places, like in Jerusalem, like, you know, that, that Jesus was crucified. Like, I believe you can visit that place. Like maybe, how do you know if those are, if these are true events or like what is known? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, this is, far outside my area of expertise, both because it, this is such a long time ago and also because I know very little about religion. Uh, it's, it's funny, uh, uh, the place where Jesus was crucified, there are two, there's sort of two contenders, right? And one is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I think. Oh, yeah. And the other one, is, or no, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where Jesus is buried. Uh, but then there's, oh, right, and, but then there's also the garden tomb which is actually uh, a waste outside the old city. There's, there's this kind of alternate site where some people claim it, Jesus was really buried. And then I don't think that they know where Jesus was crucified, like a Golgotha, right? Golgotha. Yeah. I don't think they know exactly where that is. Um, uh, and, but I don't know. I'm, I, I, yeah, not your, I can speak a little bit about this, but... Scholars have dated the you know the first books of the New Testament to be like fifty to seventy years after Jesus died. So you have a and this is before you know you have technology that can record people speaking. So the writers of the gospel reconstructed Jesus's word from sort of Jesus's word right from sort of cultural memory. So it's not really like a firsthand, you know, we read it as like a firsthand account. Jesus said this, right, in quotation marks. But that's not really how it is. It is, you know, we as a culture have produced this text that tells us Jesus said this. So a lot of scholars that talk about the Bible talk about it as a cultural artifact rather than, than an artifact that was written by, you know, an individual person. And that kind of continues throughout the Bible's history because it's curated by religious organizations, the church that decides what book goes in the Bible, what book doesn't, how the doctrine and the dogma change over time. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's like if my daughter, when she was an adult 25 years from now or whatever, sat down and started writing what she remembers right. about her great-grandmother. Like, exactly. oh, I remember my great-grandmother did this, that, right. right? Like, I'm going to reconstruct my great-grandmother's philosophies and I'm going to write them down. Right. That's what it was like. My question was a little more oh, like... Oh, sorry. Hey, there. 
I was thinking more like the um, the Quran or the Bible, how it relates to history as like, were they ever proven to be actual events, historical mm. events? I proven. think so, yeah. I don't know that. I, I really don't know that much about it. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I do, but like, um, uh, I think that both the Quran and the Bible can be read as sort of ancient historical texts <laughs> where some things are can like be traced back to actual events and other things people aren't as sure about where they're from. Right. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain that I don't think scholars, historians use the Bible as a reliable for source for figuring out this happened on this date. You know, they try and maybe, um, you know, find congruency between things that are in the Bible and things that are historical, but they can't, they choose not to use the Bible as a baseline to determine that X actually happened on Y date. Yeah. yeah. I just, it's, it must be, uh, uh, I, mean, I, I suppose you're a historian if you do that kind of work too, if you're looking at sort of the ancient period, but obviously it's like a whole different skill set. Um, and, uh, um, that is like a, one that I don't have at all, and that's kind of cool. But it, you know, it's much more focused on texts and sort of and the few texts that are extant that you can study. But I really don't know very much about this stuff. I'm such a modern. I barely know. Uh, I, I jokingly say that um, I don't care about anything that happened before the French Revolution. And I tell nice. my students that too. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, uh, 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 it's kind of true. <laughs> but I mean, I, it's, I mean, I should know more, but I really, I really know very little about anything that happened more than 200 years ago. Wow. Yeah. How'd you end up in Chicago? <clears throat> I got a postdoc. Yeah. So I was, I was at NYU. I finished my dissertation. So you got your, your, your doctorate from NYU? Yeah. You moved from Oxford to NYU. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, there's a, uh, I mean, that's right in, in the city, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, right downtown Manhattan. Um, it was, uh, uh, I mean, America is, you know, the land of opportunity uh, and uh, free rides uh, if, if you get into a uh, graduate program. Uh, Oxford is not. So, ah. yeah. Yeah. So it was. Uh, when I was accepted at, at NYU, I was accepted with five years um, of a, like a scholarship. So I didn't. I knew that I wouldn't have to work, uh, and I wouldn't have to sort of try and sort of cobble together uh, grants and scholarships and things, which is something that a lot of people have to do mm -hmm. uh, in Britain, just because the yeah. the funding uh, isn't generous enough that you can just, uh, you know, that you can just sort of get one thing and you're just set for the entire dissertation. But in the US, oftentimes, that's that's how it works. You do like maybe a little bit of teaching, but for the most part, you just do your research and once you're in, you're in, kind of. So that's how I ended up in New York. Plus, you know, New York is way cooler than Oxford. It's pretty intense yeah. though, right? Coming to New York City from small, yeah. rural yeah. Oxford. Yeah, yeah, that was, was a big difference. But it, it, it was a, uh, a change I was happy to make. I was so happy to be in Oxford for the time I was there. 
but uh, uh, it was also fun to sort of be back in like a big city and uh, a much bigger city than I had ever lived in before, obviously. But yeah, it was great. So I liked that a lot. So then you went to Chicago. Yeah. Also big city. Yeah, but smaller. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very big, small town or something. Right. Chicago is. So it's uh, yeah. It's um, the Midwestern thing. It's really like its own special thing, and yeah. Uh, I liked it. I like Chicago a lot, and it's a very beautiful city. Um, yeah. I feel like that was my first encounter with real America. New York is like not really. Yeah, it's like yeah. its own country. Yeah. yeah, New York is 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 its own thing. Really. Yeah, you yeah. did. You went to real America in the heart, <laughs> in the heartland. And now I'm here. Now you're here. This is real America, without right? a doubt. My yeah. friend Chris Howder. Yeah. When he comes and visits, who? So if people that listen to this may not know Chris Howder, but he's from LA. Uh, you know, old punk rocker, really intelligent guy. He'll drive, like, we'll be driving around here. And, you know, he's from L.A., so it's, he's got a different, he's got an L.A.-centered view on how things are, kind of, you know. Yeah. Every, he'll be like, George, this is real America. Real America here. And, like, we're driving around Maine, and he loves it. Yeah. It's real America. Yeah. It is. No, New England is really cool. I mean, the U.S. is cool because it has lots of really strong regional identities. Mm. Uh, and maybe it's just because I'm now f- somewhat familiar with the New England kind of regional identity, but it seems particularly pronounced to me, especially sort of the main thing. You know, a lot of sort of local culture and tradition has sort of remained here, and it's not overrun by uh, big franchises and that kind of thing. Yeah. There's like a real local This is one of, flavor. The, one of like the best parts of the country, I think, for like local flavor and mom-and-pop you know, businesses. Yeah. Um, that's cool. I, I love it here. Yeah. I worked for a big company one time that did not have friend discount tire. You probably may or yeah, may not have heard yeah. of them. I used to work for them and they do not have offices in new England because the standard of living is too high. Oh, so yeah. they don't want to pay their employees what it would cost to live oh, here. Right. <laughs> so there is weather and economic reasons why we have a lot of like local flavor here. Yeah. Right. A lot of people, I mean, I think maybe in the Midwest it's like that too, but like a lot of people in New England don't leave New England. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are people that have never left New England. Yeah. You know? And don't want to. Yeah. They have no interest. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had, I was like born different because I was like, get me out of here. And then I come back. And then I go. And then I come back. Yeah. I always had to go. But I knew people that were like, why do you want to go to California? Like, why wouldn't you? I'm like dying to go, you know? That was funny. I mean, that's why Chicago, uh, when I went, I was expecting Chicago to be like New York, but a little smaller. Mm -hmm. But it isn't because uh, Chicago is large, but uh, its catchment area is all the Midwest. So the people who are in Chicago have either, are either from Chicago or they're from some other uh, part of the Midwest for the most part. Uh, and so, and there's kind of a shared Midwestern culture that's like in Chicago, like that. Um, which uh, like which is kind of nice. But but it but it also means that people kind of move in small circles uh, um, mm. in this way. Yeah. New York City is totally the opposite. Yeah, if people yeah. have never been there. Yeah. I mean, it's like diverse 
as diverse as you can get. Yeah, right. you just have to check all your stuff at the door and just kind of accept this total, yeah, uh, yeah like free for all. Um, yeah. So besides studying history, yes, what do you like to do? I I like to do. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't believe it from how little I've been attending, but I like uh, <laughs> I like jujitsu quite a bit. How did how did you get into that? How did it, how did a guy from Sweden yeah get into Brazilian jujitsu? Uh, well, this is a, this is a good story. Uh, uh, I was living in Jerusalem uh, in 2012 and uh, uh, doing archival work, uh, doing my research for for this book that's coming out now. And I met this guy uh, in the Central Zionist Archives. Um, and he was... Um, and we hit it off. We were like both in the archives. He was from uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, during one like lunch break or maybe if we went out for a beer after or whatever it was, he was like so. He was telling me that he was doing this thing, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and that it was a lot of fun. Uh, and he would get, uh, and he's a pretty big guy, but he said he would like regularly just get manhandled by these people who are like 40, 50 pounds lighter than him, and he would just like not stand a chance. Uh, and it was so much fun, and he was uh, um, telling me all this stuff. And so I decided I was going to give it a try. And so when I got back to New York, um, I didn't give it a try, and I went almost insane sitting in the library reading all these documents that yeah, I had gathered yeah. and trying to write a dissertation. And then at some point... I decided that I needed some other project that was not about being in my head trying to do this dissertation. I needed to sort of develop some kind of some other goal and preferably some that was just the polar opposite of what I was trying to do. And so I decided I was going to try Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, it occurred to me that I couldn't even remember the last time I had acquired a physical skill in a, you know, it, it probably it would have been more than a decade. You know, like learning how to ride a bike or something. Maybe it was the last time learning how to juggle. Although I never really did learn how to juggle, but uh, uh, and then I went to jujitsu with this theory that it would be nice to sort of have this project and learn something and have goals, but they were goals that were totally different, or they were just kind of totally different kind of activity. Uh, and then I just went and I loved it. Uh, and um, for, you know, a year and a half. Where'd you go first? I, I went to this guy, uh, Jukau, uh who's a Brazilian uh, black belt, uh, like fifth degree black belt under um, uh, Carlos Gracie. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, he was really cool, very nice guy uh and i had people sit on my chest for like a year and a half you know i, I would go five times a week to have someone just sit on me <laughs> and i was just sort of like flailing with arms and legs uh and for some reason i i thought that was fun as i kept doing it and then you know other people came in after me. You got and, to sit on that? And I got an opportunity to sit on other people's chests. And, ah. and, you know, the more people came in after, 
the more enjoyable it became because the more people would, you know, be unable to prevent me from sitting on their chest as I was unable to prevent others from sitting on mine. Did you have to explain jujitsu to your girlfriend and how did that go? Uh, uh, yeah, I did. I did explain it. Okay. Uh, uh, the thing I always uh, <laughs> emphasized is it's weird. Um, well, I, I think for, for a few years when I started doing it, I was, um, uh, I, I, like, I never talked about it, mm-hmm. uh, with, with people who didn't also do it because right. then you, and you get all these kind of annoying questions or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and and now I, I just don't care that much anymore about it. But if but I do stress that there there aren't there are no uh, there's no sort of punching and kicking. So there's no sort of striking because I, I think a lot of people's uh, idea of any martial art is just people sort of like just kind of wailing on mixed each martial other. arts. Yeah, yeah. Mixed martial arts. Uh, and the sort of like the the cage and the blood and right. all that stuff. Um, and uh, uh, and I have I, I have so much respect for the people who do that kind of thing. It obviously requires so so many different kinds of skill and whatever. But if I, the one thing that I when I don't know what another people uh, when a, a, another person thinks about martial arts and so on, that the thing I usually stress is that I don't get punched in the face all the time, or or and I don't punch. Maybe more importantly, yeah, I don't go in there and punch people in the face all the time. Like, I'm not just going to freak out and yeah. start punching you guys. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I might choke you. Hey! Uh, yeah, yeah. Strangle. Yeah, I might yeah, strangle yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me like, Andy, you've had a hard time in the past explaining Brazilian jiu-jitsu to a girlfriend. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> it, yeah, but actually, I haven't had that. I haven't had that be a problem, actually. The sort of talking about jiu-jitsu. And, I mean, most people... Uh, are just really jealous that I've that I've found like a physical outlet that I love and that is really good for me and like keeps me active and do your academic friends like know about it because mine some of them do and they make comments like constantly oh yeah they're like oh Andy's so tough oh Andy works out and I'm like no I don't actually work out but, but I am tough right yeah. <laughs> or they'll say like oh you're in fight you're going to fight club tonight huh? <laughs> but it's because it's like so divorced from what they do you know like yeah. they don't have physical outlets yeah. is it because so is it because like so maybe like people so I when I was I got my undergraduate degree in economics and I would I would deal with like uh, and I was thinking about going to graduate school and I would deal with like the, the graduate students and people would ask i'd be like yeah those dudes spent too much time in the library you know what mm-hmm. i mean right. and so there's like a stereotype of like oh, yeah. academia yeah, or whatever yeah. but i also feel like there's a stereotype of a jujitsu yeah jitsero right yeah and it's not accurate at all just like the stereotype of academia is probably not like people probably don't understand like your friends probably don't understand that jujitsu is like so mental yeah and like not just two clowns wailing on each yeah, other. Yeah, and it's yeah. like really like this physical poker yeah. chess game. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that like is kind of like they don't understand the cerebral? No, I mean, they don't understand because, you know, they'll ask me like, oh, what's it like? Or, or, or they'll be like, oh, you don't punch people, do you? 
So I just think it's a world that's, you know, you're not encouraged to, when you're in academia, you're not encouraged to do anything but read and write. Right. Like anything that's not part of your academic um, workload is like, well, you could be spending that time reading a book, you know, and people don't say that. Like people even don't want you to think like that, but there's so much to read. You have to crystallize your writing to such a high level of sophistication that like the pressure of the discipline encourages you to jettison everything but it and that's why like you know people that i see in academia couldn't relate to jiu-jitsu just because it's so different and as fred was saying i feel the same way about jiu-jitsu because um you know the work that he does i know can relate to being in a library putting your head in a book and not leaving for hours and after that point you're so physically pent up you know you need something you need to, some sort of energetic physical release so academia and jiu-jitsu it's like the yin and the yang right. you know you yeah. get this intense mental stimulation when you read this book and it's like you know the academic work that you're doing is the most grueling mental rigor that you could put yourself through and then you go to jiu-jitsu and then you get the grueling physical rigor right that most people you know, might not experience. Yeah. And, and both are, are these kind of works in progress. Yeah. Uh, where you're, you're advancing. Um, I mean, I, I suppose if you just go to the gym and you get stronger and stronger, then that's another kind of progress also. But there's something about jiu-jitsu where it's like you're figuring things out and you, you're, you're honing strategy and technique and strength all at yeah. once. So there's a kind of uh um this element of uh this big challenge to it that that's stimulating yeah um much more so i think than than just like going to the gym and another similarity between the two is that you move you improve you know in the compared to other skills that you could develop you improve at a very slow pace you know <laughs> it takes you years to Develop a complete game, so. you know? <laughs> like, okay, you could get a good guard, but you don't have your takedowns yet. And in academia, it's the same way, you know, like you're developing, you, you improve, you become a scholar really slowly because there's so much to read, because you have to learn writing skills and imitate, you know, the uh, most sophisticated discourse that's going on in these texts, and you have to develop it history of ideas and only one you can only really see your argument once you see it in context with you know the ideas that have preceded it so it's it's, it's also like i mean it, you know for people that don't train brazilian jiu-jitsu there's no end to jiu-jitsu right yeah. and there's all it's always constantly evolving and people exactly. are thinking about you know like fred is at home at night thinking about how to beat me and then he comes in with a new thing and i'm yeah. like all right i gotta do this and we do and it's constantly evolving yeah. but yeah. like you go train for eight years and you're still like man i don't really know that much like yeah. i'm just a beginner yeah. it seems like what you guys do is the same right i mean you become very knowledgeable and it seems like your knowledge base gets shallow not yeah. shallower but narrow narrower narrower, narrower right right but you could study that and become an expert in your field mm -hmm. and still have so much to learn, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then even if you know everything um, on the level of fact, the, the way that we sort of keep changing our perspectives on things will sort of keep us on our toes yeah. uh, all the time. 
um, you know, the way the way we understand how the you know how the world works. And it used to be that history was just kings and kings and generals and so on. And that was the only thing you, that was worthwhile studying because those were the people who made history. And now we study study other groups and have different kind of understandings of why history matters and stuff. Did like Howard Zinn? Howard Zinn, right? Is yeah. That, like, I mean, he changed a big part of looking at history in America. Yeah, is I that, Yeah, I think I think he's. Uh, this is again not really my feeling right, that right. much, but my impression is that he's incredibly important uh, for Americans learning about American history, right? I believe so. I believe because you grew up in America in in my, you know, and you got the textbook and it presented Columbus as, you know, the guy who discovered America. And it was like this wonderful thing and like, you know, and all these different things. And maybe there's some things omitted, you know, and maybe, uh, and I think Howard Zinn showed another side like, hey, maybe Columbus, he did do this pretty amazing thing right but he also like killed a slew of people you know and went that went savage on like kind of talking about colonialism right he came over and like became the colonial and and laid waste to people yeah and i think zinn he showed that you know there may be other sides to these things I mean, the history, you should, I don't know how much you look at the history of New Hampshire, but even in Dover, there's a lot of really cool um, things that that happened because, like, we've been, you know. It's been around for so long. For so long, So right? much older than most. So there's a lot of, like, a lot of, like, you know, Major Waldron and the, you know, like, I forget the story, but. You know, it was it, they called it the massacre. The you know the massacre, but because the Indians came and like just slaughtered a bunch of people living here. Uh-huh. But there was a you know there was some actions before that that provoked this. You know, so there's a lot of interesting uh, history here. Yeah, you know that you can if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, um, like the first I believe the first women to ever go on strike. We're in the mills in downtown Dover. Really? Yeah. It's pretty cool. First, I mean, yeah. it may be the first women in America to ever go on strike, yeah. but the yeah, the first it was right here in, in the mills here hmm. in Dover. Interesting. I I should look into this. I, yeah, come on, man. I well, mean, in the in the spring, I'm teaching this course, on the, uh, the global uh, history of energy course, uh, and part of what I do in that is talking about mills in right. in New England. Of course. Mills here were huge, yeah. you know, powered by the mighty Kachiko River. Oh, yeah. The mighty Coochie Coo. <laughs> um, who, if you're from here, like I, most, a lot of my family's from here, there are all, everybody worked in the, in the shoe shops because at first they were, you know, back in the day they were like weaving the cotton, I think. They would ship the cotton up here and they would weave it here yeah. into stuff. And then it became shoe shops. Yeah. Um, because everybody, you know, every, my grandfathers and uncle, they all worked in the shoe shops. Huh. But before that, it was the it was like weaving wool, I think, or yeah, cotton, cotton wool, yeah. weaving cotton. Yeah. Um, powered by the river. Powered yeah. by the yeah, yeah. All of these uh, mills, of course, are water powered. Right. Uh, up and down the Conchico and all the other. If you look in Lawrence, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. they're all right on the river. Yeah. Yeah. So I do a thing now where I was taking my friend Travis. Yeah. 
and who's from Oregon. Oh. And as we're walking around Dover, I give him the, the Georgie Law history of Dover. Yeah. So I mix in facts from, you know, history with my own experience. Right. Uh, Fred, if I'd be willing to give you this tour uh, anytime you'd like. Sounds oh, pretty that's fun. Fun. oh, it's entertaining. I'll, I'll, it's very, I'll, very I'll, entertaining. I'll gladly yeah. do this. Yeah. We'll get a group. We'll get a yeah, group okay. together and I'll, I'll take it. you yeah. uh, on the George Law historical tour of Dover. Oh, exciting. They used to have, they used to have on this river a, uh, where they kept the ice, like where they, you know, like, like they would cut the ice up, like right down the, like oh, yeah. at the corner of the street. Yeah, yeah. it was like, I mean, before my time, obviously. Just like freezers. Yeah, like they didn't have, when they didn't have, yeah. Yeah, whatever. And so they would cut the cut the ice up and they store it. Put it in hay and that would keep yeah. it cold for people to keep their goods. Uh, oh yeah. There was also a uh, so when I was a kid and before, McSure's donuts were the big thing. Hmm. The big thing in Dover. McSure's I mean, McSure's donuts. Who happened to they were made in this basement right here. Oh wow. Yeah. Which, if you're from, if you're like 40 to 50 or 60 years old in Dover, yeah. you, you know what was those that were. Was that your family? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was my, uh, <laughs> so that would be my. Whose last name is McSure? Um, so, Pat McSure was the guy who made the donuts, and he married my grandmother's sister. Okay. Cool. Um, who was a Raycraft, who had come from Ireland. Okay. Who was Irish Gypsies. Cool. I was. Right. I, I am descended from yeah. Irish gypsies. I really like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's that? Now. What do you mean? Now it's, now it's the whole worldwide home of oh, Tortuga soap. That's right. Right. Yeah. Worldwide the home. The creative yeah. impetus has just transferred from one venture. Donuts to, to soap. Yeah. yeah. So We're after getting healthier over time. Yeah. 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 Uh, so listen. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to re-listen to this. Yeah. And go back through it. And we're going to do this again, if that's cool. Yeah. You want to yeah. do it again? Yeah. Cool, man, because that was awesome. Like, yeah. That awesome. was really uh, interesting. Yeah. So I would love to do it again. Yeah, let's do it, uh, for sure. Cool, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming and yeah. on me. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. And tell me. your academic friends that have nobody to talk to that I'm willing to talk to. <laughs> right. I will sit down and listen to anyone, anytime. <laughs> And Andy, thank you. Thank you, George. Yeah, brother. It's been a pleasure. We'll do it as, again, my as, friend. As, as usual. Heck yeah. yeah. Amanda, thank you for the question. Oh, yeah. What are you eating? Peace. Peace. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. <laughs>